When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Greetings, adventurers. You're listening to The Quiet Journeys of Professor Atwood with me, Professor Atwood. I'm glad you're here, and I can't wait to tell you about my latest journey. So please, settle in, relax, and prepare to quietly drift off with me to parts known, unknown, and even some places in between. Comfortable? Very well. Let's get underway. Hey, adventurers, I'm going to be uh, showing you a really cool part of the lab today and it's uh, it's part a part that I've worked on for a very long time so I'm kind of happy with the way it came out but first let me uh, just mention the White Cat Adventurers Club you'll get some great extras including early access to the episodes barring any travel delays but and I know there have been a few lately and I apologize for that it's just been very difficult with being up in the clouds and underwater and all the different places we go, sometimes, you know, things take longer than we think and uh, longer than we'd like, but we always get there in the end, don't we? It, it's only five bucks a month and you can support the show. It's less than, I don't know, a cup of coffee. I, I haven't bought coffee out in a while, I'm not even sure. Um, but you can really, you get some really cool stuff. You can get some uh, early access to other shows. You get access, like I said, to my journal. Uh, that I update once a week. So there's a lot of cool uh, advantages and uh, perks to being in the White Cat Adventurers Club. And you can even get an exclusive t-shirt at the $20 level, but a tier started only five bucks a month. And you can go to patreon.com slash whitecatentertainment and uh, check it out. And oh, we've added a few more things to the online store. There's a Quiet Journeys mugs, t-shirts, and even a blanket that can give you a nice, warm adventure hug as you uh, listen to my journeys. As we go off in these journeys together, I want you to be comfortable. I really do. I want you to be warm and cozy. And if that means a blanket, um, a nice cup of chamomile tea, you know, not too hot, just the right temperature, I, I think that's that's a really, a really fun, relaxing evening. So go to whitecatentertainment.com and go to the store and you can uh, check out these fine items. Okay, adventurers, let's continue on with my tour of the lab, or more specifically, the home hub, and even more specifically, my customized VR system called Smart Randy. I was relaxing in my VR chair and enjoying stories and lighthouse history from Robinson, the lighthouse keeper. 
But he was about to tell me about the sea monster, so I was all ears. He sat back, took another sip of tea, and began his tale. But before he did, I took another sip of tea in real life, too, just to feel more immersed in the experience. And it was indeed chamomile. Well, he began, it was a dark and stormy night, as is true with the start of most worthwhile stories. The wind was howling, and the sea was crashing against the rocks below. The lighthouse light was shining, warning ships to stay away from the rocks. But as it turned out, that warning light also had attracted something. Robinson said he suddenly heard a distressing howl echoing off the rocks. He also added that the howl sounded distressing not because it distressed him, but it sounded like the actual howlee was in distress. Robinson then told me, to his surprise, a sea serpent reared its head, and it continued to howl, and then began looking at the light of the lighthouse. It was drawn to it, and came closer. Robinson said he had seen many things in his day, and while he was certainly surprised and nervous, he felt no fear. The serpent wasn't threatening, more like searching. While it seemed the sea serpent was drawn to the light of the lighthouse, it also seemed to be using the light to help it look for something. Robinson said he found this curious, so he put on his raincoat and opened the door out into the storm. The sea serpent saw him immediately. Luckily, they both knew the universal pantomime language, or UPL, that I've mentioned before, so they were able to communicate in a very rudimentary way. It looked as if the sea serpent really was searching for something, something dear to her. The sea serpent was looking for her egg. Robinson said he understood. The sea serpent countered that he did not. She went on to explain through using, of course, UPL with her small fin-like appendages that the egg was not her offspring, but an egg she won as a prize in a swimming competition against a kraken about a year ago. It meant a lot to her. She said it was stolen by an amphibious troll. Now, I knew there was going to be a troll in here somewhere, and I'm going to have to talk to Bradley about his customizations of my programs. Robinson tried to tell the sea serpent, whose name was Alma, that he had indeed seen a suspicious-looking amphibious troll scurrying away under cover of night and heading off to the mountain. At this, Alma looked crestfallen, as she could not leave the ocean, and Robinson was also sad, as he was too old to make the journey for her. This is, of course, where Smart Randy was customizing the program for me. He knew I could not resist helping someone in need, even if that someone was a 50-foot-tall melancholy sea serpent who also happened to be a champion swimmer. Now, sea monsters, or sea serpents, have an interesting history themselves. Uh, a bit more interesting than lighthouses, if, if I'm being honest. Sea serpents are beings from folklore, sometimes, believed to dwell in the sea and often imagined to be of immense size. Marine monsters can take many forms, including sea dragons, sea serpents, or multi-armed beasts. They can be slimy and scaly and are often pictured threatening ships or spouting jets of water. The 
definition of a monster is subjective. Further, some sea monsters may have been based on scientifically accepted creatures, such as whales and types of giant and colossal squid. And also, Alma was no monster. She was just a sea serpent who was looking for her hard-earned swimming award and was the unfortunate victim of the criminal nature of a nefarious aquatic troll. I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. Now, historically, decorative drawings of heraldic dolphins and sea monsters were frequently used to illustrate maps such as the Carta Marina. This practice died away with the advent of modern cartography, which un unfortunately then, sadly, a lot of monster map illustrators lost their jobs. But nevertheless, stories of sea monsters and eyewitness accounts which claim to have seen these beasts persist even to this day. Sea monster accounts are found in virtually all cultures that have contact with the sea. Sir Humphrey Gilbert claimed to have encountered a lion-like monster with glaring eyes on his return voyage after formally claiming St. John's Newfoundland in about 1583 for England. Another account of an encounter with a sea monster comes uh, from Hans Egede in about uh, 1734. He was a Dano-Norwegian missionary and he reported that on a village to uh, Godthab on the western coast of Greenland, he observed, now, th this is a quote, a most terrible creature, resembling nothing they saw before. The monster lifted its head so high that it seemed to be higher than the crow's nest or mainmast. The head was small and the body short and wrinkled. The unknown creature was using giant fins which propelled it through the water. Later, the sailor saw its tail as well. The monster was longer than our whole ship. End quote. Now, it's possible that it was a giant squid, and but that still wouldn't really explain it lifting its head high out of the water. And generally, uh, missionaries, they have pretty good eyesight, so it's unlikely that it was a tentacle. There's even a Tlingit legend about a sea monster called Gunakadate, who brought prosperity and good luck to a village in crisis. When people were starving in the home they made for themselves on the southeastern coast of Alaska, the sea serpent appeared and suddenly fish and game were plentiful again. Other reports have come in all throughout the Pacific, Indian, and Southern Oceans. Cryptozoologists, which is a fancy word for people who spend too much time on the internet, um, they suggest that modern-day monsters are surviving specimens of giant marine reptiles, like, uh, like say, like a plesiosaur, uh, maybe from the Jurassic or the Cretaceous periods, or maybe even extinct whales, like a, a Basilosaurus. Um, you know, it's, it's likely also that many other reports of sea monsters are misinterpreted sightings of shark and whale carcasses, floating kelp, logs or other flotsam, such as abandoned rafts, canoes, and fishing nets. But, uh, I'm going to be honest here, not all of them. Now, sea monster corpses have been reported since um, modern memory. I mean, unidentified carcasses are often called globsters, uh, most likely by cryptozoologists who are constantly online. The alleged plesiosaur netted by a Japanese trawler off of New Zealand caused a sensation in 1977 and was immortalized on a Brazilian postage stamp before it was suggested by the FBI to be the decomposing carcass of a basking shark. 
Now, can you imagine if that's your job at the FBI, um, you know, trying to unravel um, DNAs of sea monsters? I, I didn't, I don't, is that a department or is that, you know, there's one guy that gets all the cases nobody wants. Is there an X-Files over there and this is just one that we happen to find out about? It's, it's a, raises some interesting questions. Um, but likewise, DNA testing confirmed that an alleged sea monster washed up on Newfoundland in August of 2001, and it was in fact a sperm whale. So, another modern example of a sea monster was the strange creature that washed up in Los Muermos in the Chilean seashore in 20, uh, 2003. It was first described as a mammoth jellyfish, as long as a bus. Again, another corpse of a sperm whale. I, f I feel like um, every, um, every school at some point, that if you live near the ocean, you just have to show what a uh, dead sperm whale looks like to kind of stop a lot of this speculation. Um, you know, I, I'm always for extra education in science, any, any kind of STEM discipline, but I know sea monsters are a little outside of that, but at the same time, I think it would save some time if there was maybe, you know, um, one course dedicated to is this or is this not a sea monster? And I think it would eliminate a lot of confusion. But anyway, let, let's get to the most famous sea monster of them all, the Loch Ness Monster. An entire tourism trade has been created around the sea monster, but I doubt that matters much to her. Uh, but anyway, one sea monster story at a time. At this point, I'd finished my tea, both digitally and in real life, and I was ready for the next leg of my journey. I offered to go to the mountain to reclaim Alma's lost trophy egg, just as Smart Randy expected me to. And clearly, this was a decision point in Smart Randy's program, as Robinson just kept sipping tea, waiting for me to respond. There's no way he could have had that much tea left. And I also had a feeling Smart Randy wouldn't go to all the random generational trouble of creating a mountain that I wouldn't eventually be going to. So I agreed to take on the quest, and I was wondering if I should have programmed so much Joseph Campbell into Smart Randy, but, uh, you know, so be it. Robinson looked pleased and said he had an old conch shell that he would blow into Summon Alma once I had the egg. I bid Robinson farewell, and he wished me well and said the obligatory good hunting that you're supposed to say before someone embarks upon an impossible quest. Now, back in the home hub room, I relaxed even deeper into my chair as the simulation brought me slowly out of the lighthouse, using the spiral stairs again, which seemed to take longer on the way down for some reason, but it may have just been a glitch. I was soon outside again. It was bright, cool, and sunny and it was just a gorgeous day. I took a deep cleansing breath just to center myself, even though I knew I was still inside, uh, and then I started my journey towards the mountain. The flowing field of tall green grass was still swaying in the breeze, and I looked around with my full VR view and saw everything from the ocean to the lighthouse to the clear blue sky. I then settled my gaze on the mountain, which I was slowly nearing. Now, Smart Randy knows I enjoy the journey just as much as the destination, so there was no fast travel, as it were, to the mountain. I relaxed into a leisurely pace and thought to myself, you know what, I'll get there when I get there. 
Occasionally a pack of gazelles was digitally generated to cross my path, followed by another pack of seals. Hmm. Probably a problem with the code that I could look into at a later time. You know, I was starting to notice a few more glitches than is normal, so, but I, I put that in the back of my mind for now. But then, one of the seals looked at me a little too intently, and he seemed to have a scar on his face that grew larger every time I looked at it. It was very odd, and I made a note to look into this a little later as well. But soon the odd leaping pack of seals passed, and a flock of birds flew overhead, and I heard an occasional squawk that sounded quite casual. No one seemed to be in a hurry here in Smart Randy's simulation, which I appreciated. Now the mountain was getting closer, which brings me to how mountains were actually made. Uh, not overnight, as you can imagine. A mountain is an elevated portion of the Earth's crust, generally with steep sides that show significant exposed bedrock. A mountain differs from a plateau in having a limited summit area that is larger than a hill, typically rising at, at least around uh, 1,000 feet uh, above the surrounding land. A few mountains are isolated summits, but most occur in mountain ranges. Now, mountain ranges and mountains, of course, are formed through tectonic forces, erosion, or uh, volcanism. Not the Star Trek kind which act on time scales of up to tens of millions of years. Once mountain building ceases, mountains are slowly leveled through the action of weathering, and that's caused through slumping and other forms of mass wasting, and of course through erosion by uh, rivers and glaciers. High elevations on mountains produce colder climates than at sea level at similar latitude. These colder climates strongly affect the ecosystems of mountains. Uh, different elevations have different plants and animals. Because of the less hospitable terrain and climate, mountains tend to be used less for agriculture and more for resource extraction, such as mining and logging, and of course recreation, such as uh, mountain climbing and skiing. And of course, the higher and more difficult to access it is, the more likely it'll be the lair for a dragon or a uh, amphibious troll which is kind of what was going on here. I knew as I looked at this mountain that I was slowly getting closer to that it would not be an easy climb. And I'm hoping there was some kind of door, uh, some kind of... Um, I, I didn't know what I was going to expect with these, you know, with, with a quest. You never know, but I was hoping it wouldn't involve me just literally climbing up the mountain inch by inch because that... Uh, would be a little tedious, and I would look into a fast travel option for that, but I have a feeling Smart Randy knew that I knew that, and that would not be the case. But anyway, the highest mountain on Earth is Mount Everest in the Himalayas of Asia, whose summit is 29,000 feet above sea level. The highest known mountain on any planet in the solar system is Olympus Mons on Mars at 69,000 feet. Or... At least that's what the Martians want you to believe, but we'll discuss that at another time. There's no universally accepted definition of a mountain. Elevation, volume, relief, steepness, spacing, and continuity have been used as criteria for defining a mountain. In the Oxford English Dictionary, a mountain is defined as a natural elevation of the Earth's surface, rising more or less abruptly from the surrounding level and attaining an altitude which relatively to the adjacent elevation, is impressive or notable. So, you know, it's obviously hard to measure in feet 
uh, impressive or notable, but you know, so be it. So I, I think there's definitely some wiggle room here. What's also interesting is whether a landform is called a mountain may depend on local usage. Mount Scott, outside Lawton, Oklahoma, is only about 823 feet from its uh, base to its highest point. And uh, Withow's Dictionary of Physical Geography states, some authorities regard eminences above 2,000 feet as mountains, those below being referred to as hills. In other words, it seems the tourism board of any local area has a say in mountain versus hill. Now, interestingly, I'm going to talk about this in conclusion, is that at one time, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names defined a mountain as being 1,000 feet or taller, but actually abandoned this definition since the 1970s. Any similar landform lower than this height was considered a hill. However, today, the United States Geological Survey concludes that these terms do not have any technical definitions in the U.S., that is a great way to get out of uh, any kind of accountability on whether you're talking about mountains or hills. It's uh, uh, basically you're saying you can call it whatever you want. So, uh, so people can call a mountain whatever name they like, and they can climb up it or ski down it without worrying about uh, what to call it, I suppose. You know, it makes you wonder, too, what the U.S. Board on Geographical Names um, is actually doing with all their time if anything they name they can actually um, unname or not name or ignore the name that they themselves came up with so you know sometimes science goes in a circle and then sometimes it goes into a funnel so you know I think when we get into naming and I, I'll be honest I'm definitely guilty of this sometimes naming can get difficult but I but I will say this when I pick a name even if it's not one that's completely well liked by the people that are hearing it I, I kind of stick with it I know I, I don't vacillate back and forth um, whether or not like if I said like if I called a hill or a mountain a mountain or a hill I wouldn't say well yeah but that was Tuesday now it's Thursday and now that I've um, gotten a little food in me I'm thinking that you know maybe it was a hill or something like that where I, I don't know if I would uh, uh, be so you know free with my naming and then um, just kind of change it willy-nilly the way um, the geographical, the U.S. Board of Geographical Names seems to. So, you know, here at the Atwood Lab, we take our naming a little bit more seriously. So anyway, that's a, a bit of a, um, a tangent. So back to Smart VR and um, Smart Randy's quest that he had created for me. As you know, I was um, looking for this egg from a um, amphibious troll that I had to get back for the um, for Alma, the sea, the sea serpent, who had won it in a swimming competition. And as I neared the foot of the mountain, I realized that the closer I got, the more it towered over me in majesty. Now, I, again, this is because most likely it was a lair, and those are the ones that look the most menacing and um, uh, intimidating. So it didn't surprise me that this was the case. Now, like I said, I know this wasn't a climbing or skiing mountain. It was a lair mountain, but uh, that didn't matter. You know, it, I got to tell you, even lair mountains, they can really be beautiful and calm and peaceful. I mean, as long as you're not at the top with the dragon. Um, from a distance, they can, you know, they can really be calming. And I just took a moment to look up and uh, let the lair mountain tower over me. You know, digitally, obviously. Uh, but as you know, sometimes it's good just to take in the scenery for a moment, real or virtual. 
Now, as I moved closer, I noticed a very large iron door. It was closed, and there were words on it, reading, Only the bravest of adventurers may quest for the competition trophy egg. Now, obviously that was very specific, and logically it made no sense that you would announce and carve on a door um, the very thing that you had stolen, but it was a randomly generated VR environmental adventure, so I just went with it and tried not to nitpick any narrative coding flaws. But I'll admit, as a scientist, sometimes I can be overly critical. Um, I once told a famous Hollywood director he was shooting all his films with the wrong f-stop setting, and he became irritated, telling me that no one had shot on film in years. I said, exactly, and he walked away even more irritated than before. Now, um, I should probably send him a letter apologizing for my flippancy, and uh, I'll probably get to that uh, at some point this week. Anyway, while I was enjoying just relaxing through this whole experience, I do like to finish things, so I decided to complete the quest. I knew there would be an amphibious troll waiting for me at the end, but so be it. I announced my intentions, and the heavy iron door swung open, allowing me entry. I entered into a large antechamber and was greeted with only one more door ahead of me as a voice boomed out and mentioned that I had to complete three trials in order to reach the top of the mountain and earn the right to face the egg-thieving amphibious troll. I have to say, the antechamber was pleasant. It was brightly lit and had some nice tapestries decorating the chamber. And uh, some of them even had some relaxing pastoral scenes with farmers daydreaming as their sheep grazed lazily near them. There was one of a group of astronomers just laying on the grass looking up at the stars. And there was one of a waterfall gently cascading into a hidden pond. I decided to stay in the antechamber for a few moments and just enjoy the digitally created artwork. I had programmed Smart Randy with an entire library of art styles and history, so it was clear he was combining some classic styles with some uh, modern ones, uh, and there were definitely some interesting results. But it was time to start the first trial, and I virtually walked through the next heavy iron door, and what greeted me did not surprise me. It was a maze. Now, I gotta be honest, I'm not a big fan of mazes. And I wondered how Smart Randy was about to make a maze relaxing, but then I saw the answer. It was made of water. A small boat sat by a dock, and I boarded it. I had the option to take over manual controls, which I did at this point. The underground cavern had calm, quiet water. It was lit with overhanging lanterns, which gave everything a soft, warm glow, and the maze walls were just reeds growing out of the water. So I could really just ignore them if I wanted to, but I didn't. I was up for the challenge. Sometimes a mild challenge is relaxing, and Smart Randy knew that I would probably want to take control at this point. The boat moved of its own accord, either by digital magic or by a virtual Disneyland ride propulsion system, but either way, all I had to do was steer. As I sailed, or most likely floated, deeper into the maze, the reeds got taller, obstructing my view. Cave frogs and singing crickets occasionally crossed my path as they hopped around from various outcroppings or floating flotsam and jetsam. The water continued to gently lap at the small boat, and I realized I was indeed in the most relaxing maze of all time. Interestingly, mazes have an unusual history. A maze is a path or collection of paths, typically from an entrance to a goal. 
The word is used to refer both to branching tour puzzles through which the solver must find a route and to simpler non-branching unicursal patterns that lead unambiguously through a convoluted layout to a goal. The term labyrinth is generally synonymous with maze, but it, it doesn't have to be. The pathways and walls in a maze are typically fixed, but puzzles in which the walls and paths can change during the game are also categorized as mazes or tour puzzles. Mazes have been built with walls and rooms with hedges, turf, corn stalks, straw bales, books, paving stones of contrasting color or designs, or a brick, or in fields of crops such as corn or indeed uh, maize. Maze mazes can be very, that's right, yes, maize mazes can be very large. They're usually only kept for one growing season, so they can be different every year and are promoted as seasonal tourist attractions. Indoors, mirror mazes are another form of maze in which many of the parent pathways are imaginary routes seen through multiple reflections in mirrors. A bonus to owning an indoor mirror maze is that you'll eventually make money when a horror action movie will want to shoot there. Um, another type of maze consists of a set of rooms linked by doors, so a passageway is just like another room in this definition. Uh, players can enter at one spot and exit at another, or the idea may be to reach a certain spot in the maze. Mazes can be printed or drawn on paper to be followed by a pencil or a fingertip. Um, these are often in diners, so you can get to the happy pancake at the center of the maze, usually, where he, um, I guess, then waits to be eaten. Um, anyway, mazes can also be built with snow. I've also seen one built with rubber bands, but uh, honestly, it did not end well. Well, maze solving is, well, pretty much exactly as it sounds. It's the act of finding a route through the maze from the start to the finish. Some maze solving methods are designed to be used inside the maze by a traveler with no prior knowledge of the maze, whereas others are designed to be used by a person or a computer program that can see the whole maze at once. Now, a maze question I often get is this. Is a labyrinth the same thing as a maze? Though the words are often used interchangeably, the answer is actually no. A labyrinth has winding curved passages forming a unicursal or one-way path from the outside toward the center. Walking through a labyrinth, you will change direction often, but theoretically should not feel lost or confused as you wind through the space. Often the labyrinth is purposefully engineered so that it takes a long time to get to the middle, encouraging slow, meditative contemplation while navigating many twists and turns. Of course, that doesn't apply if you're looking for your brother through a maze run by a goblin king in tight pants. So then it's a, a little different. Anyway, a maze is filled with dead ends. Often, there are puzzles that help you find your way and alleviate frustration, but the idea is to get lost a few times before figuring out the terrain and finding your way. Two-dimensional mazes offer the ability to see the entire course at one time, though the hardest ones will take time to solve. Labyrinths are often seen as thoughtful, peaceful spaces for quiet reflection. Mazes tend to attract those more interested in puzzle solving and facing challenges. Now, obviously, it's a little different when we get to the most famous labyrinth of all time, the Labyrinth of Crete, and it's familiar to all lovers of Greek myths. Uh, a menacing minotaur, half human, half bull, was said to wait in the center. 
Now, in Greek mythology, the hero Theseus successfully traveled through the labyrinth of Crete and slayed the Minotaur with the help of the goddess Ariadne, who gave him a ball of thread called a clue. Which was interesting because it was already called a ball of thread, and he didn't really actually need a clue because he kind of already knew where he was and what was waiting for him in the labyrinth. Now, obviously, this tranquil water maze, or I should say, water labyrinth, was a lot more enjoyable than having a minotaur breathing down your neck, and I began actively navigating the various twists, turns, and dead ends. I began mapping it out in my head, but then I noticed a recurring pattern of the randomly generated environment. I'm not saying that's cheating, but I would have to see about adding more randomness to the things being randomly generated. I navigated to the center of the aquatic labyrinth, a classic solution, and among the singing crickets and happily leaping frogs, I found a highlighted lever that glowed when I waved my hand near it to let me know that it was an object of interest. Another classic. I pulled it. The whole chamber rumbled, and the water then drained out right in front of me. Ancient stone stairs were revealed. This was a little puzzling, as I was supposed to be going up and not down. But I descended the steps, which were also bright and warmly lit. Uh, the, the same lanterns, actually, that were lighting the water maze. And I came to another chamber with an elevator. Okay, but now it was clear I had to go back and do some tweaking to the code. Unless Bradley had added an ironic sense of humor to Smart Randy while I was away, and that caused him to somehow create ways to go up and down at the same time. Um, but again, that's very unlikely. Bradley is many things, but an ironic prankster is not one of them. Most likely, it was another uh, glitch or bug. I then proceeded to the elevator and found out that it was out of order. This was my second trial, apparently. I had to fix the elevator. Surprisingly mundane challenge for a quest, but I had a feeling there was going to be a bit more to it than that. But I'll save more of this tale for next time. However, before I go, I want to share some final thoughts with you. You see, there I was, in the middle of a virtual quest, enjoying myself. Quests, of course, reflect life, but sometimes not in the way we think. We always focus so much on the end goal, like a new job or a stolen trophy egg, that we forget that everything is a process. There may not always be a formula, but there's always a way through the labyrinth. So let games, mazes, and puzzles remind you that the end goal is not always the important part. It may be the journey you're having along the way. Honestly, that's where we grow, during the trials, not at the end. Growing and facing the trials is how we get to the end. So the end is kind of meaningless without the journey to get there. So enjoy that journey. Learn from it. Don't let it frustrate you. And if you see a Minotaur, remember, he may be on his own journey as well. But it may not be a bad idea to, well, to run, just to be sure. Good night, adventurers. Enjoy your games. Journeys of Professor Atwood was created, written, and performed by Chris Mancini and produced by White Cat Entertainment. It is a work of fiction. Maybe. Music and sound design by Ron Tansky at rontanskymusic.com. 
For more info and merchandise, including t-shirts, mugs, and blankets, go to whitecatentertainment.com. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.